Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. He and I were, were sworn enemies when I covered Georgetown during the glory years for the Post. Uh, John is, by his own admission, was, excuse me, uh, paranoid, um, secretive. Uh, I, I remember one time I interviewed him and we walked out to the car and I said, why does your car have a Pennsylvania license plate? And he said, because I don't want anybody to know anything about me. On the list of greatest American sports writers, you can find John Feinstein's name. He's written 44 books, including 23 bestsellers. They've spanned college football, golf, college basketball, and even race and sports. He grew up on the Upper West Side, a product of the rebellious 60s, and yet another youth of that generation who loved the counterculture Jets led by Broadway Joe and the spunky expansion Mets. His book, A Season on the Brink, took him from successful writer in the 1980s for the iconic Washington Post Sports Department to a literary brand. It was a peek inside college basketball, Bobby Knight's volcanic personality that was seismic in its detail and how it changed the landscape. From there, he carved out a masterful resume of books about sports. You saw him weekly on the Sports Reporters on ESPN, and most recently, he penned the story of golf analyst David Faraday and his wild ride through the sport and addiction. John Feinstein's still a Jets fan, so does he have any of those Super Bowl three vibes still cooking? This is John Feinstein's New York accent. John, how you doing? Good, DA. It's good to talk to you again. You too. Thanks so much for joining us. As a New York native yourself, you grew up in the 60s and 70s of the Upper West Side as a Jets and a Mets fan. So were you just a rebellious young buck that you did not want to root for the traditional old school team, the Giants, Yankees, et cetera? Well, that was certainly a part of it. Uh, I, When I first started following baseball, all my friends at PS 87 were uh, Yankee fans for good, good reason. The Yankees were winning. They were in the midst of winning five straight uh, pennants and going to the World Series every year. Remember, there were no playoffs back then. And I remember picking up the paper in 1962 when I was five years old. And I was just learning to read, and I saw the Mets were 15 and 48. And I said, that's my team. Uh, and they won 40 <laughs> games that year, as you know. The Jet, it, it was a combination of things. Uh, again, going against the grain, which I've done all my life, I guess. But also, I could get into Jets games. You couldn't get into Giants games at Yankee Stadium in those days. But every Monday, uh, my buddies and I would ride the number five bus to 57th and 5th, that's where the Jets' offices were. And on Mondays, you could buy standing room-only tickets for $3. And most of the time, you could get a seat in the corporate boxes because the standing room was right behind the corporate boxes. And um, I became a Jets fan right when Joe Namath got to the team. 
And that was a pretty good time to be a Jets fan, unlike the last 54 years. So what are those days like at Shea sitting standing room only next to the corporate boxes for three bucks watching a, a young Joe Namath? It, it was great. Uh, it, it was that thrilling. I, I was devastated in 1967 uh, when they didn't make the playoffs. And then, of course, 68 into the 69 Super Bowl was the greatest year in their history. And I think I went to... There were seven home games in that day, 14-game schedule. I think I went to six of the seven. I missed one because my parents took me out of town somewhere. Um, and I went to the the playoff game against the Raiders. Play, uh, standing room cost five bucks for that game. Uh, and then watched the Super Bowl on TV. And you might remember, uh, well, you don't remember, I do, that in those days, the Super Bowl started at 1.30 in the afternoon. Um and I had a habit. I didn't sit and watch the Jets games. I paced up and down because I was coaching. And um, my parents went to a concert that afternoon. They were never into sports. And my dad came back. My parents came back in the fourth quarter. The Jets were leading 16 uh, nothing. And my dad walked in and said, so how are the Jets doing? Probably figuring they'd be down three touchdowns. Uh, and I said, they're winning 16 nothing." He was stunned. And he sat down to watch. And after a while, he said, John, you got to stop pacing. You're making me crazy. I said, Dad, I got to pace. And he said, sit down. So I sat down. Johnny Unitas took the Colts 80 yards for a touchdown <laughs> coming off the bench. And my dad said to me, go ahead and pace. And, of course, the final was 16-7. Thank goodness you paced. So yeah. your, both, your, both your parents were in the music industry. Did did they wonder yeah. what what's going on? Did they know about sports? Or do they think that you were from a different planet? Uh, both. Um, they knew about sports uh, largely through me. Although my dad went to CCNY during the glory years, uh, when CCNY won the NIT and the NCAA tournament, the only time that's ever happened, 1950. And then, of course, came the betting scandals. But. Uh, um, they were aware of sports. And when I got caught up in sports, uh, they made a point of trying to follow it. Um, my mom took me to a Mets game one time when I was still too younger to ride the subway along. And the Mets were down 2 nothing in the eighth, and they rallied, shockingly, for four runs. It was against the Pirates. And my mom was jumping up and down, very excited, you know, with me jumping up and down. And one of the ushers turned to her and said, which one of them are you married to? And my mom loved, loved the idea that, you know, he thought she was married to a 20-something baseball player. But <laughs> they got into it because of me when they got into it. Do you feel the same type of excitement this year for the Jets with Aaron Rodgers? <laughs> I've been a Jets fan too long, DA, to uh, get too excited about anything. Uh, I love the fact that they have a Hall of Fame quarterback on their team. He said all the right things during hard knocks. I, if Aaron Rodgers is nothing else, he's a really good performer in every possible way. Uh, but I don't want to get too carried away. Remember, they they, they were 7-4 and four last year um, and before they collapsed. Injuries were a factor, but injuries are always a factor in football. It's funny because here in Washington, Forever, whenever uh, the football team has injuries, the media acts like they're the only team in the NFL with injuries. Uh, Joe Gibbs used to sell that better than anybody. But um, 
I, I'm hopeful. Let's put it that way. I'm hopeful uh, that the Jets can ha- at least make the playoffs. I'm not sitting around saying they're going to the Super Bowl. That would be silly. But if they were to at least make the playoffs, that would be fun. Do you hearken back to those years of $3 tickets, SRO for a kid getting into Shea Stadium and things of that nature, and wish sports was still like that, the simplicity, the nostalgia? Or have you been comfortable covering and following sports today and just say, well, it's different, but it's just as good? Well, it's certainly different. Um, and I used to get into Shea Stadium for Mets games for $1.30 uh, to sit upstairs and uh, went to 66 Mets games in 1969. 69 wow. was probably the glory year in my life. Um, but I look at ticket prices today. I look at parking prices today to go to ball games and it's stunning now i'm spoiled because most of the time when i go um to games i'm working so i get in free and i usually get parking uh although when i've taken my kids to games um i've had to pay to park i don't pay for tickets let's put it that way and probably shouldn't admit that but i want my kids to have better seats than i had as a kid, I always sat upstairs, um, used to go to Madison Square Garden on my geo card for two dollars. Um, but I want my kids to have the best possible seats. So I, I, I spoil them that way. You attend Duke and you become a sports writer and you end up writing a, a transcendental book about college basketball season on the brink with Bobby Knight tracking an iconic coach, his temperament, his outbursts. This, this crucible that he was coaching in. And then for you personally, your brand changes overnight. How did your life change after Season of the Brink was published? Well, it was a life-changing experience, uh, both going through it, uh, writing it, because I'd never written a book, um, and then the sales. I, I was hoping, um, DA, when I wrote the book, that it would sell enough that I'd have a chance to write a second book. Um, that, that was my goal, that it would be good enough that I get to write a second book. I never imagined that it would become the best selling sports book of all time and that the, uh, uh, advance for my second book would be 20 times what the advance was for my first book. Never dreamed any of that. And it eventually, uh, kind of forced me to leave the Washington post, which I always loved. Uh, because George Solomon, the sports editor, simply couldn't deal with my success. Uh, he kept trying to interfere with my book research. We had agreed that I, I would do both uh, when I signed the, the second contract. Uh, ben Bradley had stepped in when George was being difficult about it. And eventually we just couldn't make it work. So I went to Sports Illustrated where they gave me a contract that allowed me to put the books first because I was making the most money at that point writing books and then write for SI um, secondarily. And, and and that was great. But then Frank DeFord, the great Frank DeFord, offered me a job at the startup National Sports Daily. And it was funny because Frank took me to dinner and he explained it was still a secret at that point that he was going to run the National Sports Daily. And he said, Do you, would you be interested in coming to work for me? And I said, yes, I'll come. And he said, don't you want to know how much I'm going to pay you? And I said, no, not really. As long as I get to work for you, I'm fine. Now, he paid me good money, but 
my whole key in making that move was to work for Frank, which was great until the National folded 16 months later. And then fortunately, George Solomon and I were able to sort of mend fences. And I went back to the post in 92 and I've been there as a contributor ever since. It feels like the National was quite ahead of its time. For those that don't know, it was a newspaper produced every day, but it was sports completely. It was color, at least the, the cover was color. And it yep. felt very futuristic that, wow, you, you have a sports newspaper every single day. Of course, you know, it's the precursor to how we wake up and we read CVSSports.com every single day or whatever website you go to, et cetera. Um, I'm sure financially there were decisions that could have been made differently, but was it a precursor to how we digest sports on a daily basis versus at the time, which is really weekly when it came to Sports Illustrated and other publications like that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, we had some great writers. Dave Kindred wrote for, for the National. Uh, Chuck Culpepper wrote for the National. Charlie Pierce wrote for the National. Uh, Mike Lupica wrote for the National. I mean, it was, it was uh, Frank went out and, and hired some very good guys. He had money backing him at the time from a Mexican in, investor named Emilio Escadiga. And uh, unfortunately, the economy just wasn't right for that kind of startup. This is when the Bush economy was starting to go south and we just couldn't get enough advertising and, and we didn't make enough money. And eventually Ascaraga decided he didn't like bleeding money the way he was and folded the paper. Now I'll say this, all the guys I mentioned had contracts with me and he paid off all the contracts, even though there was no newspaper to write for. So, yeah, I do think it was a forerunner and just as ESPN was. I mean, when ESPN first came on board in 1979, people were very skeptical of it. And, you know, look what it became. The National as a website makes a ton of sense. In retrospect, the newspaper part of it that's expensive um, was the hard part. But the season on the brink with Bobby Knight, could that type of all access storytelling happen today? Well, yeah, I, I think it can. I, 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 you know, the, my editor uh, at Macmillan for that book, Jeff Newman, told me he got about 200 book proposals that said this is the next season on the brink on all sorts of different subjects. And the point was to go inside. And, and I, I, I will pat myself on the back a little bit because what season, the reason season on the brink succeeded was because it was the first book where an outsider had total inside access. A ball four was very much like that, but Jim Bouton was pitching for both the Pilots and the Astros uh, at the time. But so I think that's why it succeeded the way it did. People said, wow, we didn't know this. And the best thing you can do in a book that I try to do to this day is uh, tell people, tell the reader things they don't know, did not know. And yeah, I, I think a book like that that could work. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a book right now on Ivy League football because I grew up on Ivy League football, going to Columbia games, and uh, they were terrible. But I loved going to the games, rode the subway, the number one subway up to 215th Street, and walked to Baker Field from there. And I've always followed the Ivy League, both in football and basketball. Uh, as you know, they've had some major successes in basketball. Uh, I, I think they could have successes in FCS football if the presidents would let them play postseason, which they don't, which is ridiculous. Every other sport does. But I have total access to all eight teams uh, in the locker rooms, to the players, uh, to the coaches. Uh, and I'm, even though the season hasn't started yet, I've done about 60 interviews 
and they've been great. I mean, Ivy League kids are smart, right? And uh, I I think Ivy League football is a lot better than people understand. And one of my goals in the book is to help them understand that, but also to have that kind of access and to tell stories about these young men. A couple of weeks ago, I was up at Brown and my first interview that morning uh, was with a kid who had grown up in Samoa. His parents were Samoan pastors. He moved to LA and became a football player. My second interview was with a kid who grew up in North Providence. Uh, if you want diversity, go see an Ivy League football game. That's really cool. That sounds like a great book idea. Was Bobby Knight at all angry oh. about anything that you put in the book? And how was your relationship with him after that? Well, put it this way. We didn't speak for eight years. Okay, so he was perfectly um, fine with it. Yeah. Uh, so I knew, DA, when I left Bloomington, before I wrote a work, that Bob was going to find something to not like about the book. That's who Bob is. Um, I remember him saying to Steve Alford in practice one day, I'm never going to talk to you about your shooting because I know you can shoot, but I will talk to you about your defense because you can't guard the floor. That was one of his favorite expressions. And I knew Bob was going to object to something. I, I didn't know what it was. And I wrote the book. I sent him a copy before it actually came out. Um, and I got a call from one of the assistant coaches, Royce Waltman, and great guy. And Royce said, John, this is your official phone call. Coach is pissed. And I was like, well, of course he's pissed. <laughs> and I said, okay, fine, Royce. What's he pissed about? And Royce said, you were supposed to leave his profanity out of the book. And I laughed. I thought he was joking. I, you know, Bob Knight without profanity? Uh, it's like Ella Fitzgerald not singing. And I said, Royce, come on, seriously, what's he mad about? And he said, no, that's it. And I said, first of all, Knight and I discussed that because he had said, you're not going to leave all my profanity in the book, are you? I said, no, because I want the book to be shorter than War and Peace. But you understand <laughs> writing a book about you without the F word would be like writing a book about you without the word basketball. And he said, oh, yeah, I understand. I get it. Except he didn't get it. And it, uh, so he was angry. He told the media that I had told him I was going to leave my his profanity out. And, uh, of course that just gave the book more publicity, uh, and helped. I, I even said to, uh, Bob Hamill, who was his, the player, he was the local reporter in Bloomington who the players called Pravda because he only published what Bob wanted published. I said, Bob, tell him he's just helping me sell the book. And of course the book ended, it was number one on the bestseller list, um, for almost six months and eight years later. I was in Hawaii covering the Maryland basketball team. And I was walking into the hotel that all the teams stayed in, uh, in Lahaina, by the way. Um, and uh, Gary with Gary Williams. And we saw Knight and a friend of his walking. And, you know, we were inevitably going to cross paths. If you can see my hands. And uh, Gary said, oh, oh, here we go. And Bob stopped and turned around and said, hey, Gary, hey, John, how's it going? Like nothing had ever happened. And we said hello. And uh, Bob complimented Gary on his team. And then Bob said to me, hey, I heard you became a father this year. How's that going? And we chatted for five minutes like nothing had ever happened. And as they walked away, Gary looked at me and he said, why would you even speak to him after all the names he called you? I said, because Gary, he built my house. Um, <laughs> and from that day forward... 
we were hot and cold. There were moments when he wouldn't talk to me. There were moments when he was absolutely cordial to me. And when I did my book on Red Auerbach, he talked to me for two hours because he loved Red. So as as you might expect with Bob, you know, you never knew what was going to happen. I was standing in a hotel lobby two years back with David Cohn. There was a celebrity, uh, pro celebrity tournament going on during the Players Championship, and uh, I, I David said Knight was on the other side of the lobby, and David said if he comes over here, what'll happen? I said I have no idea. He might hug me. He might walk right by me. He might curse at me. Anything can happen. Sure enough, Bob comes over a few minutes later. I introduced him to David. He's a big baseball fan. Uh, Knight. Yeah, David, too, I guess. And uh, Bob was like, hey, John, D David, it's nice to meet you. You don't buy, John, you remember my wife, Karen, blah, 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 blah. So he walked away a couple minutes later after we chatted. And David said, well, what, what was that about? I said, you know, he, I hear he has a little bit of dementia. He now has full-blown dementia, very sadly. Um so he 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 remembers that he knows me, but I don't think he remembers how much he hated me. Hmm. One of your greatest strengths is your ability to psychologically dissect your subjects. And this is why so many of your books are so captivating, because, of course, we see what happens on the field. But you take us inside why you think that they're thinking or behaving like that. Where do you think that deep seated violent anger from Bobby Knight came from? Well, I am not a psychiatrist. Um, what I do try to do is get to know people as well as I possibly can. And they deserve the credit if I do that. But when I first went to uh, spend the season with Knight, I had lunch with Bob Woodward, who was my editor when I was on the Metro staff at the Post. And Bob's the greatest reporter of all time. And he said, your goal should be to know everything Knight is thinking. By the time you're finished, you won't succeed. But the closer you come, the better the book will be. And that's what I've done with every book I've ever done. My goal right now is to know more about Ivy League football than anyone who's ever lived. I won't succeed. But the closer I come, the better the book will be. So, you know, I, I talked to Knight's mother, who was still alive then. I talked to his high school coaches. He was an only child. He was a star athlete. He was used to always getting his way because he was a star athlete. Uh, and, and then he wasn't a starter at Ohio State, which greatly frustrated him. And I, I think he has spent most of has spent most of his coaching career trying to prove that he, he was more important in basketball than Jerry Lucas and Mel Knoll and Larry Secret, his Ohio State teammates. Um, and by the way, he succeeded. Wow. You know, you were part of such an iconic sports department of the Washington Post. Uh, Tony Kornheiser, Michael Wilbon, yourself, amongst other luminaries and superstars. We saw you guys often work together on sports reporters. But what was it like in the days of peak newspaper journalism to be around that type of greatness, pushing each other for stories and reading each other's coverage at that time? It was a lot of fun because we did push each other. Uh, it, it, we all wanted to be the best, uh, in different ways. Um, Tony was, uh, as he is now completely psychotic. Um, Sally Jenkins, <laughs> another great reporter. Yes, and I would walk in, would walk in to say, Hey, let's go to lunch. I can't. Why can't you? Because I have to write a column and I have two children. What does the two children have to do with writing a column? 
if I don't write a good column, they're going to fire me and then my children won't get fed. He was serious about that. I mean, he, he, he I, I say this with love. He is psychotic. Um, and Wilbon, of course, as you know, if you watch uh, their show, knew every single person in sports. You know, he would be talking, oh, I got to take this phone call from MJ or Chuck or somebody else famous. There's always somebody famous. Um, and we had fun. We we had a lot of fun. Uh, for the most part, we were allowed to do what we wanted to do. Although George George Solomon had vision that did not go past that day's newspaper. So if I would suggest a story that I might need a week to do, he would say, "No, no, no, no. You got to write today's story." And I would just ignore him and go do the story I wanted to do. Um, so it, it it was a lot of fun. And looking back on those days, we really did have. Uh, an all-star cast. I mean, our outdoors writer, Angus Phillips, was so good that I read his column every Sunday, and I don't know a damn thing about fishing or hunting. <laughs> Your latest project is Faraday, the remarkable, funny, and tragic journey of golf's David Faraday. It was released earlier in the summer, and it's a pretty amazing look inside somebody that I think people feel like they know, but you really, really, as you just said, really bring out what internally he thought he felt especially during his playing days when he was a functioning alcoholic how surprised were you at how much success he could have athletically despite drinking as much as he did well it's kind of remarkable if you think about it i mean he won a tournament uh uh in in scotland uh and went out to celebrate, woke up two days later, 50 miles from where the tournament had been held and had no idea how he got there. I mean, when he says he was a drunk, he was a drunk. Um, he was also addicted to cocaine in the 90s. He had a terrible first marriage um, and was saved, he would tell you, by his second wife, Anita, who he's been married to for 27 years now. But he, he says that every day is still a white knuckle ride to stay sober. And he's fallen off the wagon on a number of occasions. Uh, he went to rehab several years ago and left after 12 days and went and got drunk because uh, he couldn't handle rehab. He just Some guys can, some guys can't. Um, but he's an amazing man because, A, he's so smart. I mean, he's as smart as anybody I've ever met in sports. Um, and, and B, he, he, has, he has such a capacity generous for generosity. He's always helping people. When I first proposed this book to him, I said to him, okay, um, you want me to call your agent? We'll work out the, the money split. He said, I don't want any of your money. You're going to do all the work. Uh, just write the book as best you can. And as you can tell reading the book, he never backed off from any questions, from any moments, including the death of his son, Shay, which was hard for me to talk about. So you can imagine what it was like for him. Um, and... Uh, I just admire the hell out of him um, for who he is, for what he does, and for being willing to do the book and do it so and allow me to do it so thoroughly. How do you walk around something that delicate, the the passing of a child with the subject? Of course, you you want to learn about it, as you said, self-describe. You have to be an expert on the person that you're interviewing, but you get to something that's really hard for you to even discuss. How do you work through that? It's very hard. It's very, very hard. Um, but David knew 
when we started the book that we were going to talk about it. I, I had written a magazine piece about him after Shay's death. So we had already talked about it once in the past, and that was helpful. But what was more helpful was the willingness of his wife, Anita, his other son, Rory, and his daughter, Erin, to talk about those days right after Shay's death, literally minutes after Shay's death, going forward. Uh, and they their descriptions of David uh, helped flesh out what those days were like for me and uh, and also of Shay, who I ne never met. But I will say this, it's been six years now and David has not recovered. I, I don't know how you recover from something like that. I don't think you do. I think, as David says, it doesn't get better. It just gets a little farther away as time passes. Yeah, Shay was lost to addiction. So you could just imagine what what you wear as a as an adult, as a parent, if something like that happens. It's amazing his life because today he's so beloved and he seems he's so quick, he's so bright, he's so funny, as you said. Uh, has was it uplifting to kind of go to the darkest parts of his life and then kind of see how he has come out on the other side, even if it is a white knuckle ride? It doesn't feel that way when we watch him on TV. Well, you 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 feel wonderful for the success he's had, and. Uh, I admire the heck out of the, the TV show he did, Faraday, the interview show, because it was great. I mean, most TV interview shows, no offense, suck. Um, softball questions, and frequently, if it's with somebody very famous, there are ground rules on what you can ask and what you can't ask. David had none of that. Um, I mean, he interviewed four guys who were presidents. Um, president Obama, President Bush the second, President Clinton, and Trump. Notice I left off president on the last one. Um, but I, I spoke to Bill Clinton. Uh, I was fortunate enough to do that. And he said Faraday was one of the best interviewers he, he's ever encountered. I mean, he's, he's a professional golfer. This guy was president. Um, and by the way, President Clinton was one of the first people to call David after Shea died, um, among others. But he was one of the first. So, uh, yeah, I'm thrilled for his success. But the I was asked. We, David and I did an interview together shortly after the book came out. And the question was, John, do you still worry about David? And my answer was, yes, I do. Uh, um, because he's had all these health problems, because he's on this white knuckle ride. Uh, and I think all of his friends do. And I know his family does, too. And, and David understands that. It's not like he flinched when I said that. He kind of nodded his head. Yeah, I get it. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. <laughs> Who was the most complicated subject of a book? I mean, we just talked about two of them, uh, but you have written so many amazing profiles and books. Was there somebody that was so complicated it was it was really hard to try to figure out or piece some type of coherent puzzle together? Very good question. I, I, the first person who comes to mind is John Thompson. Um, he and I were were sworn enemies when I covered Georgetown during their glory years for the Post. Um, John is by his own admission was, excuse me, uh, paranoid, 
um, secretive. Uh, I, I remember one time I interviewed him and we walked out to the cars and his car had a Pennsylvania license. He lived in D.C. And I said, why does your car have a Pennsylvania license plate? And he said, because I don't want anybody to know anything about me. And that was John. But wow. after he stopped coaching in 1999, we eventually, because we weren't fighting over access to his players or anything like that. Um, I'm sorry, DA. But he, uh, we became close. And in fact, he became one of my mentors, advisors. When I, when I wanted to write my book on race and sport, and I said, I want to write a book on race and sports. I don't know where to begin. And he said, well, you might as half laughed. And he pointed his finger at me and he said, which is why you have to do it. And fortunately, I got to sit down and talk to him on the subject uh, before he got sick and passed away in 2020. Um, but he was he was a complicated man, partly because of the way he was raised, partly because he was a very smart black man who understood the implications of being black and what came with it and was was very proud of what he achieved but didn't want anybody saying he was asked at his first final four in 1982 how he felt about being the first black coach to get to a final four and his answer was i resent the hell out of that question because the implication is i'm the first black person capable of coaching a team to the final four i mean you never knew what to expect from john which is what made him so fascinating for me and i'm very glad that i got close to him before he passed away was he, by the end of his life, optimistic about the journey we've made as an American sports society in a race? Or was he still frustrated, paranoid, angry about what we had not accomplished? Uh, really all of the above, DA. Uh, uh, he was optimistic about the progress that had been made. He, was, he liked the fact that someone being a black coach, particularly in basketball, wasn't the story it had once been. But he was still angry and he was always paranoid <laughs> that never changed um he used to he did a lot of radio toward the end of his career and he used to always insist on being allowed to park near the back entrance of the building he didn't want to walk in the front entrance he wanted to walk in the back entrance like people weren't going to recognize it <laughs> what i said to him you think nobody's going to recognize you and, <laughs> but but he knew we still had issues and and that's why he want he wanted me to write the book because of the issues and uh i can't remember who it was who who told me this a, a good friend of john's i'm blocking right now on who it was it was another coach oh it's george rabbling and george said that john had told him that i was the person who needed to write the book because if a black person wrote the book a lot of people would just write it off oh he's a black guy complaining but and of all the white people John had known, he thought I was best qualified. That was flattering as hell. And of course, um, there were still people who said, "Oh, he's just a liberal." You know, who's going to always side with with blacks? Well, I'm certainly a liberal. I don't always side with anybody. Boy, that's that's got to feel very validating when you spend your life loving sports, writing about sports, um, investing so much energy into trying to be an expert on all things of your subjects. And then have John Thompson, of all people, saying that's the right guy to write a book of that type of magnitude. That must have felt incredibly validating for your life. Yeah, it did. It, 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 it. I, I'm all, um, Raises His Take a Knee was not a bestseller. 
We sold them okay, but it was not a bestseller. I've had 23 of them. And yet it's probably the book I'm most proud of because of what you just said, because of the subject, because I felt it was a book I needed to write and it needed to be written. Uh, and so I'm, ve I'm very proud of all of that. The only thing I might be as proud of was for years, Dean Smith always told me I was, all, I was fair to North Carolina for a Duke guy. And the last <laughs> time we were together, always. Lefty Drizelle called him on the phone. He had started on a book. Unfortunately, it was too late. Dean was already too far into dementia to complete it, which is, if you ask me regrets in my career, that might be number one. But Lefty Drizelle called him while we were talking, and Lefty, who went to Duke, said, you letting a Duke guy write your book? And Dean said, I'm letting a really good guy write my book. And, geez, that meant the world to me to get through that with Dean. Yeah, for sure. A guy that everybody, everybody respected, Dean Smith. So the book, the most recent project of John's is the David Faraday book, Faraday, The Remarkably Funny and Tragic Journey of Golf's David Faraday. That's available on Amazon, all places that you get your books online. You can pick it up anywhere. Uh, but also keep an eye out for a book about uh, Ivy League football, which should be very interesting as well as uh, John is currently working on that. When do you think the delivery date of that one might be? It'll be uh, probably October of next year, and I think I have the title, you never know, but my, my tentative title is The Ancient Eight, which is what the Ivy League is. And as I pointed out in a post column a couple of weeks ago, it's the one conference I know will not be part of realignment in any way. <laughs> so proudly not part of realignment. Absolutely Very much. right. John, it's always great when we cross paths. I thank you for all the times you join me on my show. This was absolutely fantastic, and thanks so much for dropping on by. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. He's an icon. He's one of the greats. John Feinstein has tons of books that really kind of move the needle in the sports literary space, and really nice of him to spend some time with us. And I like this idea for this new book about the the Ivy League's football ancient eight sounds pretty cool in this day and age of money, NIL, conference realignment. You will not find the ancient eight amongst those types of dynamics. And really interesting to hear him go back and kind of remember how simple it was to grow up as a sports fan in New York of the 1960s. I mean, imagine taking the subway or riding your bike down to the Jets ticket office on a Monday and waiting in line in Manhattan to get tickets for three bucks to Shea Stadium. It's just a completely different beast these days, for better and for worse. But that simplicity is, is pretty cool to think back to, to harken back to. And John's got some great stories. I mean, he was there throughout two of the greatest seasons in New York sports history, the 68 Jets and the 69 Mets. And, Went to a lot of games. That is enough to light anybody's fire, no doubt about it. I mentioned during the interview that John's parents were in music. His dad was involved in the arts as the GM of the Washington National Opera and was also the first executive director of the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. His mom actually taught music history. John's written about Army-Navy, he's written about the NFL, he's written about college basketball, he's written about the legends of college hoops, the legendary coaches. I mean, go down the list and he's done a little bit of everything. So talk about a resume. Really nice to have him on as a native New Yorker, this podcast. 
Thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman for his help on this episode, as always. Once again, you can catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio. And this podcast is also available in video form on the YouTube channel for WFAN. Until next week, I'm DA Damon Amendolara, and this is New York Accent, an Odyssey original series. is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Hey.